All right, good morning, church. Good to see everyone on this beautiful long weekend. My name is Brendan, one of the pastors on staff here. It's great uh, to be able to open the word together this morning. It's great to have the Smith family back. He was on staff here for a while. They've been a long time part of our church. Uh, They moved down to the States, uh, and so it's so great to see your amazing smiling faces again. Welcome back. When I was a boy, I had the privilege of growing up without a TV. It wasn't until I was 12 years old until our family purchased our first beautiful 27-inch Panasonic tube TV that was common in so many houses. But before that, my dad's office had a 12-inch tube TV, you know the kind that had the VHS player attached to the bottom? And so every once in a while, he would bring that home for us, we'd maybe rent a movie or something. Um, But for my eighth or ninth birthday, one of my friends gave me the VHS The Lion King. Um, And we didn't have cable, we didn't have movies, that was the only one we had and my dad brought the TV home for my birthday and I'm pretty sure I watched it every day for like a month straight. If you know the movie, it begins with the birth of a new prince named Simba. He loves adventure, but he also thinks rather highly of himself. All right, if you've seen it, you can't forget the song by Simba uh, and his royal aide Zazu. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. All right, I feel like we could probably all still sing along, but it's a song where the overconfident and young Simba, he sings about how great he's going to be as a king and how nobody will be able to tell him what to do and everyone will listen to his every word and whim. It's his young ideal of kingship. The song shows an immaturity, but it's also an immaturity that lies in and throughout humanity. It's this prideful desire that says, I am better than everyone else, and if everyone else knew how great I am, they would listen to me and do what I say. Of course, the problem is, so many people think like this, and if that's the case, there's going to be some pretty serious conflicts. There's going to be chaos. And this is a similar reality to where our biblical story picks up today in our series of Old Testament characters. Here's a line that ends the book of Judges, and it sets the scene for our character this morning, and it says this, the very last verse. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Or in other words, they did what was right in their own eyes. Their behavior was out of line with God's will. Instead of making God their king, they became their own source of authority. Everyone was their own king. They did what they wanted, and the book of Judges is a stark example of what happens when God is taken out of the picture. Oppression, abuse, misuse of power, injustice, idolatry, sexual immorality, etc. Other than Deborah, the judges go from kind of okay to bad to worse. At the end of the book, the reader is left feeling devastated, like what just happened to God's people? When God is removed, human nature tends to unravel and great atrocities take place. The underlying theme is this. If we live life without God as our king, the life of order that God set up by his word spirals back into chaos. Life of order that God set up by his word spirals back into chaos. Israel had lost their way. So God raises up the prophet Samuel. He gets them back on track and he gets them ready for a king whose line will one day bring about the promised savior. In our modern Bible, 1 Samuel comes after the book of Ruth, but timeline-wise, it comes right after the book of Judges, which ends with the verse I read a moment ago. So we're going to take a look at a few different moments in Samuel's life 
from the beginning of the book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, and we're going to learn some lessons on how we make God our king. So lesson number one, be intentional about bringing those around you, those closest to you, into God's presence. First, Samuel opens with the story of Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. They make a yearly trip down to the town of Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty. They didn't have eight different churches to choose from in their town. There was one place of worship, and it would take a full day's hike just to get there. Worship and sacrifice cost time and money. I mean, they could have gone down to the Mediterranean Sea. Have you seen it? It's gorgeous, that bright blue water, sandy, seashell-covered beaches. Could have maybe had an all-inclusive vacation. Not likely. But the point being, they were intentionally devoted to God, and it showed by their actions. So for us, maybe that means you could use a vacation next year. You could head to Barnabas on Keats Island or Green Bay Bible Camp for a Christian family camp experience. Or you could go on a mission trip with your family or some friends. Make church attendance a priority. Volunteer. Find ways to bring God into everyday, ordinary tasks. Back to Hannah. She's unable to have children until, after prayer and the blessing of the priest, she has a miracle child, a boy, and she names him Samuel. And once Samuel was weaned as a young boy, Hannah dedicated him to the service of the Lord, and she left him at Shiloh, where the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, was set up along with the Ark of Covenant. This was a movable tent temple. God had the Israelites build in the wilderness once he rescued them from Egypt. It was a place where God's presence was present, and it was staying in Shiloh. And it's where Samuel grows up, under the care of the aging priest Eli. And in chapter 2, Samuel is contrasted with Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So 1 Samuel 2, verse 12 says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. All right, they had no regard for the Lord. But, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. It's a very similar phrase used of Jesus when he was 12. Eli's sons are abusing their position of power. They're puffed up, full of pride and selfishness, while Samuel is young and humble and growing. He's fulfilling his duties with integrity, and the people notice, and God notices. Being intentional about getting close to God is lesson number one. But like Eli's sons, this doesn't guarantee a godly outcome, but if we're not intentional, a godly outcome is not likely, apart from a radical encounter with Jesus. And speaking of encounter, this brings us to lesson number two, learning to listen and hear God's voice. This lesson comes to us from the famous story in 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel 3, verse 1 says this. It says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. So we see the continued faithfulness of young Samuel. I think this is especially impressive because young guys tend to be pretty impressionable. And Samuel has these two young men, Hophni and Phinehas, who could have easily peer pressured him into abusing his role or becoming like them. But Samuel stays faithful to God. He had that modeled by his parents, a steady faithfulness year after year, and he wasn't swayed away from it. The end of verse 1 says that the, Lord, the word of the Lord was rare. Visions from God were few. And given Israel's lack of devotion, it's not surprising they were not hearing from God. And so if you're finding God is silent in your life, 
then maybe it's important let's take, to, take a, to take an inventory. There's some common roadblocks that keep us from hearing from God, so I'll go through a few of them. Number one is busyness. Do you carve out time for God? What's your devotional and prayer life like? If it's minimal, like Israel, you're not likely to hear much from God. Number two is comfort. We live in a comfortable um, society. It's easy to think we don't need God or simply we just forget. We have far more than we need. Life is good. We indulge and distract ourselves and it becomes easy to harden ourselves against any kind of dependence upon God. Sin. Sin fundamentally blocks us from God like in, a, like in an eclipse, the moon blocks the sun from the earth. The sun is still there and present, but you can't see it. If you are living as the king of your life and ignoring the instructions the Bible lays out from you, it's not likely God's gonna be very loud. And connected to sin is idolatry. Idolatry meaning we worship created things instead of the creator. Idols distract us from what ultimately matters. We look to the created things to speak or give us life, which is something that only God the creator can do. And lastly, desire. Do you want God to speak to you? Do you wanna hear him? I think this one ties them together because if you don't have a desire for God to speak, you'll let yourself be busy. You won't be bothered by your sin or idolatry. And in a world of comfort and materialism, our desires are easily swayed elsewhere. If you don't believe me, just ask Facebook or Netflix or any marketing company that together spends billions of dollars a year, so we spend even more billions of dollars a year on things we didn't even know we wanted two seconds ago. I already have three pairs of sunglasses, but they don't have photochromic lenses, you know, the kind that change how dark they are depending on how bright it is, and now they come in that popular new style that was popular back in the 80s. Our desires are a spiritual battlefield, and if we don't rein them in or direct them towards God, they'll block us from hearing God and making him our king. These are some common roadblocks. So let's jump back into our story. One night, there's two different times Samuel hears his name being called. He thinks Eli's calling him, and it's actually God. But he gets up. He runs to Eli. He says, Eli, here I am. And Eli groggy's like, oh, like, it wasn't me. Go back to bed. Then verse 7 tells us that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is interesting. Samuel has been ministering before the Lord his whole life, but he did not know him relationally. He knew about God, he served God, but he didn't know God. But God was persistent and patient and kept calling. It's what God does. And God calls a third time, but again, Samuel goes to Eli, and finally Eli wakes up enough and realizes this is, could be God calling. And he instructs Samuel to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So verse chapter 10, again, or verse chapter 10, this is what the Bible says, Samuel lies down, and then the Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening, and the Lord spoke to Samuel. Stood there, like God is in the room, whether it's a vision or God's actual presence, God shows up and he reveals himself and his word to Samuel. It's an amazing story. But what's more amazing is what God does individually for Samuel. He does for the whole world in Jesus Christ. God shows up in person, in the flesh, to seek and save all people. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. The living word comes to seek and save humanity from our sin and idolatry. And when Jesus ascended back to heaven, 
He told his disciples that they're to tell the whole world, all nations, that Jesus came for them to have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit who can indwell in them. What does that mean? It means that those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, those who make Jesus our king, can hear the voice of God. So the question is, how do we hear God's voice? There's a few things. First of all, faith. This is an aspect that we need to believe that we can hear God and that God does speak. I want to say God does meet unbelievers in dreams and visions and words, as he does believers. But of course, faith that God does speak is going to be an important first step. Secondly, ask. Pray and ask God very simply, God, would you speak to me? And then that leads to be quiet and be still. Psalm 131 verse two says, I have stilled and quieted my soul. In a world of busyness, noise and distraction, this takes practice and work. I think we often don't hear God because we don't quiet our souls. We simply don't take the time. And fourthly, know that God speaks through his written word. This is by far the most common way God speaks to me. God has miraculously preserved this book. His spirit is all over it and in it and through it. It's alive and active and it's been a primary way that God has transformed lives for centuries. So forget Facebook, get your face in this book. (laughs) When we read our Bible, How often do we start with a prayer like Samuel's? Lord, speak to me through your word. Your servant is listening. And maybe if you don't do this often, sit with smaller chunks in the Bible. Sit maybe 10 minutes with one verse or just a a paragraph and reread it over and over. You can ask some questions such as, God, what, what jumps out at me? And why is this jumping out at me? Does anything line up with anything you're going through in your life right now? And is there a promise or an encouragement for me in this? A mentor of mine told me last year, when he reads scripture like this, a more of meditative way, he says he writes down what he thinks God may be saying to him in a different color pen. And then he dialogues his thoughts with his color. Journaling can be a really helpful way to understand what God may be speaking to you. You can look back on it, you can maybe see some patterns, or maybe it can simply help remember what there was and give you more time to discern. God speaks through his word, so let's be a people who read it. And number five, God also speaks through our conscience or our thoughts. Uh, The apostle Paul says to the Romans in 2 verse 15, he says, even the people who don't know God, the Gentiles, show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them and at other times defend them. We have an inner intuition about right and wrong. God has put that in us. But if we consistently override God's law with our own, we'll become more and more callous towards it. Our consciences can become seared. But if we tune our thoughts to God, we can open our spirit to his. The Bible tells us God speaks to us in our thoughts, and I believe it's something that we can work at. It's an area I really want to grow in. It's that still, small voice that maybe corrects our behavior, maybe it prompts us to call or text someone, or maybe it brings a Bible verse to mind, or maybe it's simply a reminder of our identity as a child of God, some sort of encouragement of who we are in Christ. The big question, of course, when it comes to hearing God's word is how do we know it's not just our thoughts? How do we actually know it's God? So number one, does it line up with scripture? 
I had a friend after high school, he was a worship leader in the youth group, but outside of youth group, he was using a lot of swear words. And I ended up talking to him about this one time. He's like, oh no, it's all good. I talked to Jesus about it and it's all good. Like we figured it out. I can swear it's not a big deal. And I thought, really? The Bible doesn't say we're supposed to control our tongues or that we're not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth? A word from God will not contradict scripture. God will not justify your sinful behavior. That would be Satan. The word Samuel gets in chapter three is actually a condemning word to Eli and his sons for their sin and because they don't do anything about it when God warned them the first time. Normally God's words are gentle, but sometimes he has to press in a little bit harder because sin leads to death and God wants life for us. So does it line up with scripture? Second, does it line up with your current season of life? In other words, is it relevant to your situation, what you're going through? Does it encourage you or help you to keep going? Does it speak to your true identity as a child of God, especially when you're putting yourself down or if others are putting yourself down? Is it God's word encouraging you and lifting you up? Because God's word won't belittle us. Confront us? Yes. Will it shame us? No. God's word is encouraging, and it's meant to point us to Jesus, point number three. Fourthly, community. It's important to bring community around you to help you prayerfully discern whether a word is from God or not, especially big life decisions. God speaks to us through other people as well, so let's listen, let's be humble, let's talk about this together, and let's lean into our church community to hear God speak. And the last thing, how do we know? Is it about loving God and loving others? Because if it's not, it's not a voice from God. So our first two lessons from Samuel are are about being intentional, about being in God's presence, and learning to discern his voice and his word to us. The third lesson comes right out of hearing God's word. If we're to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus, we're gonna need to obey his word after we hear it. So lesson three, obey God's word. Back to Samuel's story. At the end of verse three, Samuel grew up, um, and he became Israel's prophet and judge. Verse 19 says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. It's an amazing statement of Samuel's character and who God has raised him up to be. But then in chapter 4, Israel goes to war with the Philistines, and there's no mention of Samuel. Like, what? Samuel is God's spokesperson, and if I am going to war, I'm pretty sure I'm going to at least consult him, but there's no mention of it. There's no mention of prayer. They go into battle, and day one, they lose big time, which should have woken them up, like, oh, we should pray, or we should go grab Samuel and chat with him about this. But remember, they have no king. They do what they want. And so they grab the Ark of the Covenant. They don't ask for it, and they bring it out onto the battlefield like some sort of magic trophy. And because of their arrogance, God allows Israel to lose the battle, and the Philistines deliver a deadly blow to the Israelites, killing 30,000 soldiers. They steal the Ark, they kill Eli's two sons, and Eli falls over and breaks his neck all in the same day. And it's actually the prophecy that God spoke to Samuel in chapter three, which is another way we know God's word is true. What God says will always come to pass. 
But then the Philistines make an arrogant mistake. They put the ark in the temple of their god Dagon as a trophy. And if you know the story, it's kind of comical. The morning after the first night, Dagon had fallen over face down beside the ark. So they lift the statue back up. And then night two, the statue falls down again. This time, its head and its hands had broken off. The symbolism, Dagon has no brains, no power, no life, and no authority. And then plagues break out among the Philistines and they rush the ark back to Israel with some lofty gifts. The point, God is not a trophy. He opposes the proud and exalts the humble. If Israel is to remain in God's favor, they need to come to God in humble obedience. We pick up Samuel's story again in chapter seven. The ark has been returned. Uh, Chapter seven, verse two, it says, all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they assembled there, they drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, potentially as a purifying symbolism. And then on that day, they fasted, and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mitzpah. This is an amazing turn of events. The people who had no king and did whatever they saw fit to turning back to God as their king. And this time Samuel is there. He speaks a word to repent and they humble themselves before the Lord. They get rid of their idols. They fast, they pray, they confess. They move their sin out of the way to serve the Lord in humble obedience. And then what does the Bible say? They lived happily ever after, right? They went down to the Dead Sea. They floated by their retirement villas. No, that's not what the text says. Immediately, there's opposition. The Philistines get wind of this nationwide prayer meeting, and they rally their entire army against them, which brings us to our last lesson from the life of Samuel for this morning. In order to make God your king, expect great things from God. This time before battle, the Israelites looked to Samuel and ultimately towards God. Verse eight, they said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a lamb and he sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him like immediately while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic they were routed before the Philistines. God fights for them. Then the men of Israel rushed out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. They just had to mop up the mess. Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and he named it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. They set up a reminder that God has helped them and therefore will continue to help them in the future. Expect great things from God. This will look different for different people in different time periods. For the Israelites in Samuel's day, it looked like winning a battle against an oppressive nation. For William Wilberforce, it was a political vote that ended slavery. Today, it could be the end of the war in the Ukraine or other war-torn countries. It could be governments sweeping in to help stop child trafficking. 
For others, it's a wayward child coming back to the faith or God meeting you in a place of despair. Maybe it's healing or a new job or even making the team. And I'll tell you what, I saw God do some great things on our trip to Green Bay Bible Camp. Two weeks ago, I took eight of our teenagers from our church and we helped run day camps there. To be honest, I was a little skeptical at first. I wasn't sure how things were gonna play out. Nine hours of day camp all week was a little intimidating for all of us. But we were intentional about seeking out God's presence. It cost us some money and you helped raise us some money, so thank you church, you paid for our bus. And so it cost us something and we traveled a ways to get there and every day there was worship and Bible teaching. We heard God's word and we obeyed God's word by humbly serving and loving others. And then I saw our youth, they came alive serving using gifts given from God that they didn't even necessarily know they had. Children experienced the love of God for the first time. There was 15 to 20 kids that had never been to church and we gave them Bibles and they had big, great questions about faith and it was so fun to walk alongside them that week. And there was other kids that grew up in church whom we simply got to encourage. And we made new friends and we saw the beauty of intentional Christian community. One of the students that came on the trip came hold and told his parents that Jesus' presence was evident everywhere all week long. It was such a joy to be there and watch our teens serve Jesus together. So as we close our service this morning, I want to encourage you to take some time this week and think about the question, who is your king? There's no better king than Jesus, the one who humbly left his throne and took the judgment for humanity's sin upon his shoulders by dying a death on the cross. Keep your eyes upon him. Maybe that means you need to dethrone some idols. Maybe it means you need to take off your own crown and give it to Jesus. And since it's summer, it's a long weekend, hopefully you have some extra time. Get into God's presence. Be still. Listen and ask to hear his voice and expect great things from the one and only King Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I'm thankful for this word through Samuel. God, we live in a place where many people do as they see fit, where, we don't, where we're not grounded in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, if, if we need to turn our hearts to you, God, may we humbly come before you and confess and repent. If there's things blocking us from hearing you, God, I pray that we would work to move those out of our way. As a church, we wanna be a church that hears your voice. We wanna be a church that obeys you. And God, we wanna expect and see great things from you. God, there are miracles working in this place. There are people coming to Jesus. There are people being healed, but there are many who are not. But Lord, we wanna see more great things. And so may we humbly walk with you, Jesus, as we continue to learn from your word. And God, may your spirit empower us to hear from you, to live in your presence, and to do great things for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.